Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Broadway Curtain. And make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Our guest this week is a renaissance man in this industry. His journey started in Stamford, Connecticut, where he claims to be the worst King Arthur in the history of the American musical theater. Once he hung up his tights, he donned many different hats. First, he was a critic in Los Angeles then a dramaturg for such musicals as Hairspray, then a producer for Jujamson, then a librettist, then a teacher, then an artistic director. And now he adds author to his CV with his amazing new book, The Secret Life of the American Musical Theater, How Broadway Shows Are Built, which is now in stores and available on Kindle. To talk about his amazing career, here is the artistic director of City Center's acclaimed encore series, Mr. Jack Vertel. Hello. Jack. I, I'm not that amazing. Oh, yeah. I'm, oh, I think you are. <laughs> we disagree. We greatly and, disagree. And I'm not even sure living legend applies to anyone sitting in this room, although living. I am living. <laughs> <laughs> we beg to differ on that regard. But um. Now, growing up in Connecticut, did you get to come to the city a lot to see shows? Yeah. You know, my parents were both theater lovers, and my father and grandfather were tangentially in the theater business. Right. So oh, my yeah. grandfather built theaters. He was a contractor who built theaters. Built the, the bro- he built the Broadway and the yeah. Hellinger, mm-hmm. um, but also built theaters all over the country, co- mainly concert halls around the country. Oh, interesting. Um, and also a lot of housing and office buildings and other things. And my father had uh, written a play that was produced on Broadway in 1937 for two weeks at what is now the <laughs> Richard Rogers Theater. And so they were they were sort of kind of in the theater world, and they first took me to see Peter Pan when I was, that was the almost first six. That was Yeah, with Mary with Martin. Mary Martin. Oh. And, and then they would take me, you know, to a couple things a year, basically, from yeah. that time on. The, uh, among the very few – I had a very happy childhood, but among the very few sins for which they are not forgiven – even posthumously, <laughs> is that they wouldn't take me to see Gypsy because they thought it was too racy for a nine or ten year old glove. boy. Give him a glove, yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> and and so I didn't get to see Ethel Merman and Gypsy and could have. Oh. That one I kind of semi understand because they felt it was a moral issue. They didn't take me to see The Music Man with Robert Preston because they didn't like The Music Man. And I thought, boy, wow! I hope I'd be more generous with my kids than that. What kid wouldn't like to see Robert Preston in The Music mean. Man? Did you listen to a lot of musicals growing up? All the time. Yeah. And they did take me to see Damn Yankees and Pajama Game and oh my gosh. Uh, later on Carnival and you know West Side Story. remember listening to the Guys and Dolls cast album when I couldn't have been more than four and falling in love with Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat without having the slightest idea what it meant yeah and a bushel and yeah. a peck yeah. which i actually thought was a song about farmers yeah me too me too <laughs> I think how, would you, know, how would you know when you're that yeah. age you I know? totally it's actually not a yeah. song about farmers not at, at all, all. <laughs> not even close um you know so it was in my blood and a lot of discussion about the theater around the dinner table because every time they saw a show we talked about the show and yeah. and they and when i saw a show they wanted to hear what i had to say about it so i grew up you know having my ego encouraged in ways right. that are probably that's, not that and healthy, forming opinions but, and yeah, yeah, yeah like it all great. like everything i said mattered oh and, you yeah. know so, what did you study when you went to harvard i was a straight ahead english major you know there's okay. no theater major at harvard yeah was there ever a desire to be an actor to get in front well of the i was a really good high school fagan and a really bad high oh. school king Arthur. Uh, right. Then I got to totally. Harvard in freshman year, was on two plays at the Loeb Drama Center and quickly realized that I was never going to be a professional actor. <laughs> because if you're not the best actor on stage, 
in an undergraduate production in college, <laughs> you're not going to ever be Lawrence Olivia. That's all there is to it. You're just not. Good for you for recognizing that early, though. Yeah. It's funny you say recognizing it early. I was actually acting on stage with Stockard Channing and Tommy Lee Jones, and yeah. you know, the, oh. the, the, I, but we didn't. I mean, they were good. They were they, they were yeah. the best act. You know, they were the best actors <laughs> on stage. But I wasn't even as good as the people who were significantly less good than they were. <laughs> And then did you move to Los Angeles immediately following graduation? I went to London for six months um, because I was writing the great American novel, also known as the unpublishable postgraduate novel. Um, (laughs) And really, I just went to London to drink and go to the theater. That was the main thing. Um, And uh, while in London, I met the woman who would become my wife and came back from London. We moved in together. In Boston, I did not want to stay in Boston. She had a job teaching in Boston. She did not want to move to New York, where I had way too much family. And so we went to Los Angeles. We went to Los Angeles basically for a, a few months yeah. and stayed 14 years. We, wow. just, we just forgot to come home. We got married and yeah. forgot yeah, to come home. Great. We made a start there. Yeah. Yeah. What were you doing when you were in Los Angeles? I start, You know, it was a great... That was a golden age of filmmaking. The early 70s. Oh, this yeah. was when we moved out there just when... Coppola was making his first great mm-hmm. pictures. Scorsese was making his first great pictures. Robert Altman was making his first great pictures, and on and on. Steven Spielberg made—I remember—made uh, um, Sugarland Express mm-hmm. while we were out there. You know, he was just getting started. Yeah. So I decided I should be in the movie business because it was really an exciting time in the movie business. The only problem was I didn't really have any talent for the movie <laughs> business. Um, so I tried to be a screenwriter for a few years, and I wrote a lot of bad screenplays. Um, because I didn't really know how to write a screenplay. Yeah. And then to support myself while my wife was teaching uh, high school out there, I, I started writing freelance anything. And at one point, a friend of mine from college called me up and said that a friend of his was starting a free weekly and they needed a theater critic. And he said, you know, have you ever written a theater review? I said, no. He said, well, but you know a lot about the theater and this is Los Angeles where nobody knows anything about the theater. So if you can write an English sentence, you can probably get this job. So... I did. I, 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 I called the editor of this paper, which was called The Reader. There are very successful editions of The Reader in Chicago and uh-huh. San Diego. The L.A. one never caught on. But mm-hmm. they, they hired me to write basically freelance for $35 a, a published review, which was $35 more than I had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and um, I did that for a couple of years. And then I got a call from the uh, editor of the Los Angeles Herald Examiner, which was the Hearst paper in LA it was not it was the paper that was unsuccessfully trying to compete with the LA Times and had been for decades sort of like the New York Daily News here yeah. it wasn't a tabloid like the news but it was a you know it was a paper for people at the racetrack and cab drivers and whatever it was yeah. a kind of blue collar paper a good blue collar paper and their theater critic was retiring and they offered me the job based on what I had done at the reader yeah. and I didn't even when I was at the reader I didn't even think of myself as a theater critic I just thought of it as one of the freelance yeah. writing jobs yeah. I was doing but when the Herald hired me, I was a theater critic, and they yeah. paid me a living wage. I could actually pay my bills, yeah. and yeah. you know, great. so I did that for five years, I wow. guess. And they made me the arts editor. And when they made me the arts editor, I realized in a blinding flash that I was climbing up the wrong ladder. Yeah. I was not actually interested in journalism. I was I was writing about theater because I was interested in theater. Right. Yeah. 
And if I stayed at the Herald and did a good job as the arts editor, they'd make me a city editor or some some other thing that had nothing to do with what I wanted to do in life. So I jumped ship as quickly as I could and got hired by the Mark Taper Forum as a dramaturg. Because I was at the Herald, I saw the press release that the dramaturg was leaving the Mark Taper Forum. <laughs> and I literally ran from <laughs> the place where the press releases were delivered to the telephone <laughs> and called up Gordon Davidson and said, let's have lunch. Wow. Let's, let's talk. That's and he amazing. hired me. And then did you leave that? The, so I left the, the paper. paper, right away? left the paper. I, mean, I left the paper and I went to work for the taper, so to speak. Um, and I was there for two years to the day before I came here. Was it awkward to be at a place that you had been reviewing and criticizing for a number of years? Yes and no. It was not most of the time. There were people there who were kind of mad at me when I got there who eventually we got to be friends. Yeah. Um, there was one resident director there who did not speak to me the entire time that I worked there. But, you know, once I understood that he wasn't going to speak to me, that, yeah. uh, you know, okay, so fine. And then what was your main function for Center Theater? It was a lot of different functions. Um, the taper was a sort of big bureaucratic theater. Uh, so I did everything from working with writers on new work, which was the fun part of the job. Yeah. To um, writing, pro, you know, ghosting program notes for the artistic director, which he would then edit, and you know, to doing research when we we did classics like Hedda Gobbler, doing research and you know, putting up stuff in the rehearsal room that says this is what a house looked like, you know, in Norway and <laughs> yeah, no, I was going to yeah. say if you could, exp- you know, some of our listeners maybe younger not really know what a dramaturg does, uh, you know, uh, dramaturg. It's a hats, it's but- a funny thing, dramaturg. Because I was I was a dramaturg at exactly the right time to understand this. Mm. Dramaturg was a term was a it's a German term, and it became a highly fundable thing in the not for profit theater. The idea was that it helped to have somebody elevating the literary level at mm. these not for profit theaters, and so it was there were in those days when there was quite a lot of corporate giving and the NEA was more generous and you could get funding for a dramaturg. And so every theater suddenly had a dramaturg because it was a, it was a fundable yeah, job. Yeah, yeah. And then what they did with that person depended entirely on what the artistic director wanted to do with that person. Oh. So um, in some cases, they were really a literary manager who handled the inflow of scripts and making sure everything got read and covered right. and sending them back to the writer or saying, we want to do a reading or right. whatever. And in some cases, it was... a became a kind of intimate relationship between the dramaturg and the playwrights. Um, and in some cases, it was purely a research job. There were theaters that basically only did classics. And so you spent your life you know, researching different periods and sh- that Shakespeare's plays are set in or yeah. Chekhov's plays are set in. So it, it was a lot of things. Yeah. The part that I liked most was, because I think because I'd been a critic, mm-hmm. the part that I liked most was working with the writers who weren't mad at me. It took a long time. It, do, it does take a long time and should take a long time to build trust with, a, with any artist. But if I could build trust with them, seeing the story in its totality mm-hmm. and the characters and trying to be a sounding board for that playwright yeah. was a really enjoyable, instructive thing. There were two who I loved. John Robin Bates, who was a real kid at the time and who uh, the taper commissioned to play of his and he and I worked together very closely for yeah. those years. And, 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 a, and a writer named John Stepling, who has a sort of underground career, but not a not a popular career, who I actually think, you know, he's kind of one of those genius geniuses who's a genius to the people who think he's a genius. Yeah. And yeah. then other people read his work and say, I don't understand a single word of this or why you're doing it. And I 
am, was and am a big fan of his. He now lives in Finland and he writes television and screenplays and stuff. But he wrote some wonderful, weird, weird plays about Southern California. What makes a successful playwright-dramaturg relationship? I think, first of all, trust. I think that the playwright has to believe that the dramaturg is on his side, is only helping him try to discover and not trying to write the play for him or drag the play into some direction that the playwright has no real interest in it going. And that just takes time. I mean, I think every artist who has enough faith in the idea that they should be saying something to the world also has a very sense, uh, developed sense of protecting protection of what that, yeah. what that is, and doesn't want it messed with, you know. And and I think that the way you build that trust, which is sort of the second half of the equation, is principally by asking questions and not making suggestions and saying what you find not yet clear rather than trying to suggest what you think it means and how the playwright could make it mean that better, which yeah. no playwright wants to hear. And in fact, they own that work in the deepest sense. They own the impulse behind it. They own what it is. And if you try to do it for them in any sense, it just destroys the relationship. And it should destroy the relationship because that kind of art is made by an artist. And what prompted the move from L.A. to Rocco Landisman took over this company, Jujamson Theaters, which owned five theaters, and called me on the phone and said, do you want to come work here? And I said, why, why would you call me? <laughs> and he said, because you, when you, back in the days when you were a critic, you wrote a terrible review of Big River when it was trying out in La Jolla. And it was a smart, terrible review. And I think, you know, that you can help. So, wow! Did, I, were you, so I came. Did you know each other socially? No, nope. really I had met him once before. From a, from a well, it wasn't as cold a call as I thought it was. Ah. I thought it was a completely cold yeah. call. I had met him once before. He later confessed to me that this was a kind of job interview. He already knew that he was going to take over Jujamson, although he hadn't formally done it yet. And he had this impulse. The, 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 the situation back then, 1987, was that many, many Broadway theaters were empty. Yeah. We don't think about that anymore because now it's all about can right. you find a theater to exactly. get into. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The situation was completely 180 degrees mm -hmm. the opposite back then. So he felt, since Jujamson was the smallest of the three theater-owning chains, and since Schubert particularly, but also Niederlander to some degree, had relationships with Cameron McIntosh and Andrew Lloyd Webber and Peter Hall, and mm -hmm. um, that they were always going to get the choice bookings, and that the only way to fill up these buildings was to produce our own shows in them. We decided we were going to principally do American work, that there was plenty of English work out there, and it was being done by plenty of people who were very happy producing English That's plays right. and English musicals, mm -hmm. and that there was this resource, which were these wonderful plays and musicals written by Americans yeah. that were not, that didn't have producers. So we would do that. So it's a combination of opportunism and I think actually pride in native work. Well, I what brought two plays with me in my suitcase from the taper. I brought M. Butterfly and I brought The Piano Lesson. Well done. And thank you. It was, it was a good, good place. It was yeah. a good suitcase. So we, and, and Rocco and his then wife Heidi were producing Into the Woods, the first, the original yes. production of Into the Woods. So that was going into what was then the Beck and is now the Hirschfeld. Hirschfeld. Mm -hmm. And we quickly made arrangements with the Stuart Ostro, who held the option on um, and Butterfly, mm -hmm. to put that in the O'Neill. That was our first year. And then we quickly got involved in a couple of other shows. We got involved in Grand Hotel, and we got involved in City of Angels. We got involved in Jelly's Last Jam. And the August Wilson play was on a long, one of those August Wilson long tapeworm mm -hmm. tours of the country yes. on its way to New York. So we had committed to do it when it was, whenever they got, got it. 
got it done. And this is as producer. And that opened in the curve. We were we were always co-producers gotcha. of these shows. We were never the lead producers. What was the relationship with August Wilson like? I had a great relationship with August Wilson. It was a I, I really did by the end consider him a friend. I was a, such a huge admirer of his work. I was a you know I was a a, a, a blues fanatic when I was in college and still am to some degree. So the language of those plays was incredibly familiar to me in ways that I never thought I would hear it spoken on a stage. It combined two different loves that I had, one for the music and and, and that poetry of, the, of that culture uh, with Broadway theater. Yes. So I started when I, when piano lesson, uh, when piano lesson, we agreed to get involved in it. I wrote him a letter uh, and told him how happy I was about it and blah, blah, which he never answered, never answered, almost never answered any of my letters, which was fine, as it turned out. And then I went to the world premiere of Piano Lesson uh, at Yale, and there he was standing there. So I thought, well, I better. So I went up to introduce myself, and I had never met him before. And he said, oh, yeah, you sent me that letter. That was a good letter. I like that letter. And I said, yeah, you know, and and I said, I have to tell you that when I first read this play, I was in the bathtub. I read this play in the bathtub in Los Angeles. And when I got to the part about how where the piano actually had come from and what the piano was, which is a long two and a half page monologue or whatever, I said I nearly drowned. I I I, I, I like completely lost body control. And I just have to tell you that that's why I'm so excited about this play. And he said, "Oh well, I changed that. I rewrote all that. That's all different." <laughs> so, I, and you know, to tell the truth, I don't know whether he did or whether he was just teasing me yeah. because I was being so embarrassingly fawning. Um, <laughs> He changed it a little, I think, but wow. that was the beginning of that relationship. And we would sit at the Edison Cafe, and he would talk to me, and I would smile and nod, and then he would send me a script, and I would send him a bunch of questions and a letter, and he wouldn't answer the questions. But then another draft of the play would arrive. Some of the questions had been dealt with; some of them never got dealt with. Oh. So it was a very oblique but friendly yes. relationship. And he was just—he loved to tell stories. He would sit at the Edison with a cup of coffee and tell you. He said to me one day, "So I got this idea for a play." This guy shows up uh, at a house uh, where his girlfriend's living, and he's got a radio under his arm. And um, the thing is, he stole the radio. I said, and I said to myself, that doesn't sound like an idea for a play, actually. It's an interesting image. But it's, and he said, play's called Seven Guitars. He said, but I don't think there's any guitars in it. And I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then six months later, this script shows up called Seven <laughs> Guitars. The radio was now gone yeah. except it played a hugely important part in the play because there's a joe lewis fight on the radio yeah. so i began to understand that he had this image in his mind and right. that later on the image morphed into oh no right. i don't want the radio under the guy's arm i want the radio to tell a story that leads to a fight that yeah. but you know all those he, he was like an automatic writer i think these things came into his head and then he had to filter them and oh, figure edit, out how they edit but, them and figure out how they worked and so the plays evolved very slowly and, and inexactly, which was fascinating for me because to see what he would change and how he would change it and how he would get from something relatively formless to something quite formally complete really? yeah. was just that process, amazing. The gestation yeah, and it, mean, like, it never happened the way you would think it would happen. Yeah, you know? you, a lot of people just think, oh, yeah, he just woke up and wrote yeah. that play that way. Yeah, or he had an idea for a story and here's how the story yeah. goes. But that was never true. No, the story was like the beginning of the story was as a guy – with a radio under yeah. his arm who's gone to his girlfriend's house and it's a stolen radio. Well, that's the beginning of a story. It turned out not to be the beginning of the story yeah, he ended right, up telling, right. but, you know. You know. Um, the piano lesson, I, I had heard that the ending was different originally. There was no ending. There was no ending. There was no so ending. That's why it was different. There was no ending. 
this was great. This and you know, people have always loved this play, including me. But it, you know, the play is basically almost three hours long, and it's about who gets the piano, right? It's a brother and a sister, and they're arguing over what to do with this piano, which is a her- which is an heirloom heritage. It's carved by one of their ancestors with the history of their family that includes coming over on slave ships. And so the piano is a very, it's not just a piano, it's a very special thing. And it's obviously a symbol of the heritage of this family yeah. and thereby the heritage of all black right. families in a right. sense. And, legacy. and so the, yeah, what, what do you do with your legacy? He wants to sell it and buy a piece of farmland so that he can actually begin to prosper in a pragmatic way. And she wants to save it as Right. You know, an homage to uh, to a painful history. Who gets the piano? The play was written. You didn't at the end of the play. You didn't find out who gets the piano. You never answered the question. Who gets the piano? Ooh. So I I can't take too much credit for this because I know Lloyd Richards, who was his director, uh-huh. asked the same question. Said, "Who gets the piano?" Right. <laughs> and I said, his "Who gets the piano?" And he said, "You know, I don't really care who gets the piano." He said, I'm interested in the fact that there's an argument over what to do with the piano. And I did say to him, I think in a story where you argue that point for almost three hours and an audience is sitting there having paid good money, Mm -hmm. they're going to want to know who gets the piano. And he never said he would write another scene. He ended up writing two other scenes Mm -hmm. uh, that that answered the question, Um, one midway through the second act and one at the end of the second act. And although I hate to give away anything for people who haven't seen the piano lesson, although in the end, the boy gets the piano, not the girl. The audience votes. Yeah, the audience votes, exactly. I think he could have written it the other way. I think if he had figured out a way to write it the other way, he would have written it the other way. It was like, he he didn't want to admit that there had to be an ending to this argument. Because in his mind, there is no ending to the argument. And he's right. Right. But it doesn't make as good a story unless you end the story. And then pretty soon, all of his works are going to be on HBO, I believe. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean. Because only one of them has ever been filmed. There was a TV movie of the piano lesson. There's a TV movie Uh of the piano lesson. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So a whole new generation is going to be exposed to his work. Yeah. And the TV movie of the piano lesson is... About yeah. half as long as the play. And, oh, yeah. You know, it's, you know, it's a hallmark. It's know, a hallmark thing. Yeah. yeah, gotcha. <laughs> one of those um, things. Was uh, Pianolist the only one that you worked on him? No, I, we, we worked on the last six oh, my gosh. Uh, of, the, wow. of the ten. We worked on Pianolist and Two Trains Running, Seven Guitars, Radio Golf, Gem King, of the Ocean. King Headley? Was and King Headley. And, in there? Uh, King Headley yeah. Wow. How did Smokey Joe's Cafe come about? Smokey Joe's Cafe was actually my idea. I, I have had an obsession with Lieber and Stoller since I was a little kid. I went to summer camp at age nine with a copy of Yakety Yak, a 45 RPM recording of Yakety Yak in my, <laughs> yes, w- among, other, among other 45s and a little portable record player. And, you know, it said Yakety Yak. And then underneath that in parentheses in little small letters, it said Lieber Stoller. And then yeah. underneath that, it said the coasters. So the coasters <laughs> were singing it and the song was called Yakety Yak. But what did Lieber Stoller mean? Yeah. Um, and it turned out, of course, they were the authors, and that's how authors were billed in those days. Once I realized that that little thing that said Lieber Stoller was on half the records that I loved, I figured out who they were. And, yeah. you know, by that time I was probably 11 or 12. When I saw Ain't Misbehavin' many, many years later, mm-hmm. which I still think is the perfect mm-hmm. review, mm-hmm. I remember very distinctly driving home and thinking, well, you could do this with Lieber and Stoller. There has to be a way to do it. And so that's where the idea came from. I thought to myself, it'll never be as good as Ain't Misbehavin', but maybe it'll be good enough. Um, well, and geez. you know, it turned it turned out to be pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it did yeah, pretty good. <laughs> and coming back, right? This summer, yeah, is that right? yeah Congratulations. Uh, summer, fall, something. I mean, I'm That's not fantastic. sure. It's going to all depend on theater availability. I'm sure. What are some of the secrets to structuring a review? You know, these are deep, dark, mystical secrets. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell you, to kill us after. You but I'll tell you, right? Exactly. I'll tell you what that actually. 
generally, uh, Smokey Joe's Cafe was structured in a very specific way to not to tell a story, but to go on a very clear journey, which if you do it right, I think the audience doesn't know it's going on. They get on the ride without realizing it's a ride. Right. Um, and the ride in Smokey Joe's Cafe is simply this. It starts out with a song called Neighborhood with a bunch of people who seem to be looking back from a vantage point of maturity on their days in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And then it goes, and I realize this doesn't make literal sense, but just follow me out. The next thing that happens, happens at about three o'clock in the afternoon when high school gets out, right? And they sing Young Blood to this girl who's going down the street. So it's three o'clock in the afternoon. And when the show ends, it's about three o'clock in the morning. But simultaneously, when the show begins, they're in high school. They're about 16 years old. And when it ends, they're in their 40s. So it's a day and it's a lifetime at the same time. That's interesting. And it ends with them gathering having gone out having ridden the b&o out to their individual destinations and having had female trouble and male trouble and marital trouble and alcohol trouble and winding up in jail and having lived a big portion of life they come back together for stand by me at the end which is and neighborhood gets reprised two tiny little times in the show to remind you that yeah these people were all once in the neighborhood Mm -hmm. so that it's it's a very simple journey of life basically it's like songs of innocence and experience yes. or high school to having your own kids in high school yeah. or three o'clock in the afternoon to three o'clock three in the morning. morning and it's just a helpful way to think about where to put certain songs and where to what what you know there's no way that that a song like stand by me should be in the first act and there's no way that a song like young blood should be in the second act they tell you where they belong yeah. on that spectrum did Lieber yeah. stoller have any interaction with you as you were conceiving this? yeah uh, they, they had a lot of um interaction but mostly it wasn't about structure it was about casting it was about sure. design it was about arrangements they sort of left us alone for how how the thing got from one place to another wow do you enjoy Putting re- reviews like that together, this I, lo- I love it. I've yeah. done it four or five times. What other ones have you done besides? Well, I did. Joe's? I did Amos Behaven. I, Amos Behaven. Excuse me. After midnight. After midnight. Uh, oh, yes. Which started out life as Cotton Club Parade at Encores mm-hmm. and then moved on to Broadway. I did a, one that we didn't quite pull off, uh, based on the Randy Newman catalog called Harps and Angels, mm-hmm. um, and I did one at Encores called Stairway to Paradise that didn't never got past Encore. It wasn't really intended to get past Encores, although it was pretty great which was um 50 years of broadway review material oh, in great. review yeah and that had a different structure which was really fun to work on a stairway to paradise there were all these reviews right and they yeah. were they were a big part of broadway history the zigfeld follies yeah. and george white oh, scandals yeah. and the music box reviews the faces and of 19 whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. show and all that yeah. and and they were all not all, but the success, there were many successful ones and the successful one in those days meant that you ran a season right. you know and you had a couple of hit tunes in it but when we actually did a review at Encores, we did the Ziegfeld Follies of 1936 because yep. it was doable. We were able to restore the orchestration for it. And you realize that those shows were sort of like Saturday Night Live. They were done to entertain an audience that week, yeah. you mm-hmm. know, with whatever was funny that week yeah. and or trenchant that week. Mm-hmm. It's hard to justify doing them today because there's a sketch about someone being caught in an elevator. And if you had been around in 1936, you would have realized that there was a famous newspaper story about somebody being caught in an elevator that they were parodying. But how would you know that today? You need the context. So, so, right. So we didn't. So we thought, well, we can't. We really shouldn't do another whole review. We shouldn't do, you know, the George White scandals of 1921. But there's all this great material. There's tons of great material. So by focusing on 
the particular kinds of material that interacted with famous events, not mm-hmm. someone being stuck in an elevator, but like right. World War One starting or World War Two starting, mm-hmm. and do and putting it in chronological order, more or less, you could actually tell the whole history and the whole social history of America from oh, the turn of the century to the fifties because they hit on everything. Uh-huh. They hit on the ragtime era. They hit on World War One. They hit on the Great Depression. They hit on. World oh, War Two. Yeah. They hit on certain fashion trends and certain musical trends, you know, dance crazes and things. So by putting it together without ever saying anything, without ever having a narrator or anything, yeah. you just could. You get we got we got you from, uh, you know, an old uh, uh, Victor Herbert operetta type thing all the way to the last thing in the show, which was from New Faces of 1952, yeah. which is this great infidelity song yeah. called Guess Who I Saw Today. Yes, yeah. great song. Um, but, you know, the, the thing about that song is it's about infidelity. It's about discovering an infidelity, but it's about having moved to the suburbs, which is what happened after World War II, oh, right? She says, guess who I saw today? I had to go to town had, to do some shopping, mm-hmm. and I parked at this place, and, you know... Yes. And she caught her husband in a right. you know in a bar with another woman. Yeah. So you can trace the whole hit. Like, but, that, so that yeah, period. The, the suburbs didn't happen until after World War II. Wow. You know that times. couldn't have happened in 1929. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the way the song was written assumed that people yeah. were living in a world yeah. where yeah, we all moved to the suburbs. That's not licensed, is it? Stairway to Paradise. Yeah. No. Uh-uh. Uh. I'd love to see it done again, but it, you know, it's the only orchestration we have for it is for thirty pieces. It's a great big Jonathan Tunick orchestration, <laughs> yeah. big one, and it was Kristen Chenoweth. I saw and, it. I just remembered. Yeah. I saw it. Yeah. And uh, Chris Fitzgerald and yep. and Kevin Chamberlain, oh, the top line fun. in it. It was great fun, and it could have moved to Broadway, but Kristen got a TV series, and then it went away. And yeah. you know, yeah. maybe one day it'll come back. It, for our for our encore's audience, which is an older audience that loves traditional theater music, it was you know. How did encores come your way? I was part of the uh, what were we called the advisory committee that formed encores. I was asked to be there by Ted Chapin from mm-hmm. Rodgers and Hammerstein, who felt that they had put together this committee to figure out what how musical theater could come back to city center, but that they didn't have a producer on the committee. So no one actually knew anything about the nuts and bolts of how to do it. They knew like what kind of work they wanted to do and what their principles were. So they put me on that committee and um, I thought they were all out of their minds. I mean, I thought this is, this can never work. That was my, that was my response. Uh, Wrong again. Wow. And then after Walter Bobby did the first three years, I guess, or four years, three years. And then Kathleen Marshall did the next four, maybe. Mm Mm-hmm. They asked me what I would like to become the artistic director. So I went to Rocco and said, you know, this was just as the houses were filling up. We were doing less yeah, producing. And right. more, I was becoming more of a handicapper. I would say to him, book this show, don't book that show, <laughs> yeah. rather than actually working on the shows. Yeah. He said, well, you know, we made a deal, basically. I gave back some of my jams and salaries to give me 12 weeks over at City Center. And they, pay, they made up the difference. And so it was all <laughs> and, fun. And had artistic directorship been something you'd strived for wanted to do no or? i but i love i really by this time i knew a lot about old musicals yeah <laughs> really a lot about old musicals and and i loved them and i loved you know there were there were still big gaps in my knowledge but i had but i had a bunch of knowledge yeah not, not enough um and so the opportunity to do that and also the opportunity that i had not really confronted that i wanted but that i actually did secretly want which was to not be a lieutenant for once and to actually run something myself yeah, totally um, not that I was unhappy being Rocco's lieutenant. It was the greatest job you could ever have. But So it gave me an opportunity to do that in a limited way. I mm-hmm. kept my job here. I was right. only, you know, they only do three yeah. presentations yeah. for a week each. And, but it's funny. I had, at one point, 
Rob Fisher, who was the founding music director of Encores and was in, still the music director at this time, said to me, you know, I think it's time to do an operetta. And I said to him, you know, I really hate operetta. And he's a very smart guy. He could have had any one of a number of responses. But his response was, which operettas do you hate? Which made me realize that I had never seen an operetta. <laughs> so this uh-huh. idea that I hated operetta because I heard in my mind, you know, the, some right. soprano yeah. trilling. Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> I didn't really know anything about operetta, even though I fancied myself as being very knowledgeable about yeah. the musical theater. So I thought, well, you got to take a couple of months here and do some research and listen uh-huh. to some shows and play through some shows. And we ended up doing The New Moon. Which I was, was going to say, and how that, so you ended that's up how the new moon, uh, yeah, And I thought, and The New Moon is one of my absolutely favorite oh, yeah. encores of all time. <laughs> It's you know crazy primitive form of musical theater, but totally. very grand and with yep. these huge yeah. loopy soupy melodies and and beautiful music, truly beautiful, beautiful music, music. Mm, and yep. gorgeous score, and Great. no you know no rational dramaturgy at all in it. No. But who cares? No. How do you plan a season? What it's come down to is you start with one show because the key to an encore season, I think, is making sure that the audience isn't having the same experience three times in a row. So if you say, I really want to do. Cabin in the Sky. That's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. You think, okay, Cabin in the Sky is African-American. It's from the 40s. It's very jazzy. Um, it's a folk tale. Now, what can we put around it that mm-hmm. don't have any of those qualities so that they'll be right. very different? I mean, I'm just picking Cabin in the Sky yeah. out, of the, out of a hat. But we, we normally start with the one show we want to do most, and then we figure out what goes around it. And there's... There remains a long list of shows that we haven't done, and you know. And then there's the question of can you get the rights? And if you if you can't get the rights, then what, I mean, one year we said we really want to do City of Angels, but someone was planning a revival of City of Angels, yeah, and so couldn't get the rights. Get so then we had to start all over again. Wow! And it took us you know ten years to get Most Happy Fella, but oh really? Um, we've been trying and trying and trying, and finally one year they said yes because it was under option to somebody for a sure. revival. And oh right, of you know, course. Sure. Eventually that person gave up the option. And <laughs> that's how we got to do it. What are some some of your favorite musicals that aren't known by the general population. So not in Oklahoma, not in My Fair Lady, either you've done them at Encores, you haven't, whatever, but just ones that you think are underappreciated gems. I think by and large, the gems are appreciated. Because when you say gems, I think what you need to mean is shows that work all the way through, that mm-hmm. have really good scores, that mm-hmm. have really good stories, that have really good opportunities for performers. I think most of those actually are are the carousels and the My yeah. Fair Ladies yeah. and the Guys and Dolls and later ones as well. So really what you're looking – really what I'm focusing on some of the time is like here's a show that has – like Cabin in the Sky. That has a great – I mean this is a great score but a very problematic vehicle right. for both political and dramaturgical reasons. So those are the things that I get – special pleasure out of because yeah. I think you're exposing and usually it's the music and lyrics that you're exposing. I mean, sometimes there's, there are shows that uh, random example, I wanted to do uh, face the music, the Irving Berlin r- yeah. show, which we did. Yeah. Um, but the truth of the matter is, although I think the score is delightful, I really wanted to do it because I thought the book was funny <laughs> and I, and to find a 1935 show with an actually funny book, a book that's still funny after all these yeah. years. Needle in a haystack. Oh, yeah, it's no, a needle in a haystack. And the fact that it's basically the same plot as the producers, which was had just opened at that time, <laughs> I thought, well, this is cool. We're going to yeah. do this. Show. You know, the, the opening number of the second act of Face the Music is the opening number from the producers. That's, it's exactly the same. Incredible. And so let's do that. Yeah, and let's, you right. Know, <laughs> 
So in that case, it wasn't just the score. It was the whole gestalt of the piece that I thought was worth celebrating. But usually it's a score. Usually it's, you know, people yeah. need to hear this music again. I mean, so even something like Pipe Dream. Totally. Which is not a successful show, really. It, there's two reasons to do it. One is that, at least for 70% of the way, it's a terrific score. Yeah. yeah. And I think the best Rodgers and Hammerstein score from a flop. Yes. For uh-huh. me. The other thing is, it's really fascinating to watch Rodgers and Hammerstein hit a wall. These guys didn't hit many walls. Nope. You know, they usually got home safe. And you can just feel it happening in the show. And you think, well, that's amazing to watch that creative process come to tears yeah. Yeah. right in front of your eyes. These guys couldn't figure out how to do this show. Right. And it's partly because of their what their sensibility was. And it's partly because they ran out of gas. It's partly because Dick Rogers was sick at the time and not part of the process. But... It's just a misfire, yeah. and, and it's fascinating to watch major artists have misfires. So many yeah. of uh, the recent shows have been recorded for CD and on iTunes and stuff. Um, are you planning on doing that for the future? Or? Uh, you know, I would do it with every show, happily. Yeah. The, the fact of the matter is Encores doesn't pay for these things and doesn't have funding to pay for it. So if there's an estate that wants to pay for it or some donor who wants to pay sure. for it, mm-hmm. we're ready, willing, and able. Um you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein paid for the Pipe Dream recording. It's um, a great recording. Yeah, we, and it's a great recording. It's a great live. And amazing. the original show had weird casting problems that made the cast recording not a good recording. Yeah. So this was their only way of preserving the score at more or less. It's. I mean, I would never claim that it was at its absolute best that it could ever be, but <laughs> right, it but was a considerable improvement good representation over, of it, yeah. over uh, the cast album that existed. Mm-hmm. And they were willing to pay the the money so you know if you know anybody who's got a couple hundred thousand dollars they want to throw at a cast album i'm ready <laughs> i wish i did yeah i wish yeah. i god damn do i Truth. wish i do um yeah some oh. of them don't really you know 1776 doesn't really need a new yeah. cast album that's the cast album is fine but particularly the ones from way back yeah yeah um were either not well recorded or not recorded at all and those are the ones that deserve preservation absolutely Agreed. Agreed how long have you been artistic director now since 2001 was my first season excellent yeah. Not bad. Well, how long should someone be an artistic director? <laughs> That's, That's a big question. It depends question. on what the art they put out, isn't yeah. it? I yes, mean, like, yeah. it, it, do you keep, because you seem to be keeping it fresh. You seem to be raising yeah. the bar every single time. I mean, it, it yeah. I what have you learned? As I hope so. Well, I think one thing I've learned from watching other artistic directors is that at a, at a certain point, you, you're almost inevitably going to begin to lose energy and to repeat uh-huh. yourself. And not necessarily repeat the shows, but just repeat the work. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, you either ought to have the brains to get out or yeah. somebody ought to come up to you and say, get out. Yeah. Huh. But you still seem so enthused. I'm very this. enthused still, yeah. And I think um, one of the things that's making me enthusiastic is uh, that now the shows we can, because we've done, however, what is it, it's our 23rd season, so what is that, three yeah. times 23? Yeah. Yeah. Is, uh, a lot of shows, 63, you know. Yeah. We're reaching into the pile of shows that are hard to do for for physical reasons right. the the parts don't exist the scores don't exist well, cabin the in the sky you scripts had create, don't match you, you know whatever yeah yeah cabin in the sky yeah. we spent a yeah. very considerable amount of money writing a new orchestration because right. the orchestration doesn't exist so that's exciting and fun and the research is fascinating and every one of them that you do like that is mm-hmm. a mystery story mm-hmm. i mean you start out with a script from somewhere 
and a score that either is like a piano conductor score or it's just the sheet music from yeah. the songs yeah. and, he's, and and a playbill from way back when yeah. that tells you what order the songs were in and who totally. sang them, which characters sang them. And you start working on I mean, well, who wouldn't be fascinated by that? I mean, if you love musical theater, who wouldn't totally. be fascinated by that? It's oh, like yeah. looking for King Tut's tomb. I mean, totally. <laughs> get up in the morning and go out too. searching. Yeah. And then uh, your summer series that Encores is doing, which is now dedicated to off-Broadway right. musicals, Tell us how that, that came well, about. There was always the idea from the very beginning of Encores that there should be a second s- series, but there was neither money nor time. We were so busy trying to figure out the first series that it was like, <laughs> should that second series be a deeper look at the composers we're doing in the first series? Should it be off-Broadway? Should it be whatever? And eventually, um, Encores you know, was running on all cylinders, basically, and so this idea resurfaced that we should do something. And a funder surfaced who was willing to help if 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 we needed it, and so the notion focused on off Broadway, which is what we weren't doing, right? Mm-hmm. That they, and also a lot of time had gone by. So when Encores was founded in 1993, is that mm-hmm. the first season? 94, four, four, I think. Yeah. 94. You know, the 70s were not back so far. Yeah. Now, now no. another 20, another two decades yeah. plus have gone by. So, so off Broadway seemed suddenly very fertile because. Mm-hmm. Playwrights Horizons and oh, yeah. Lincoln oh, Center and, pick from. you know, uh, all of these places, the yeah. uh, New York Theater Workshop. And everybody's been producing these little littler musicals. And the heritage of Off-Broadway, which was, you know, the 40s and 50s and 60s, had gotten so far away that there were lots of people who really didn't remember those shows at all, which is sort of what Encores and Operetta is like, mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. So it just seemed like that was the right thing to do. And it occurred to me that Janine Tesori, who I have known since practically since I was got in got into this business, oh, wow. because she was a part of the music department of the Secret Garden many years ago, would be an interesting person to run it because she's had that experience. She's done off Broadway. She's been through all of that, and she's an incredibly smart and articulate person with very strong opinions and very strong leadership capabilities. And her idea was when we talked to her was the way you should do this is. You sh- I mean, we haven't been able to do it 100% of the time, but the principle of the idea is all those shows, whether you're doing a show from the 30s like Cradle Will Rock or whether you're doing a show from the 70s or 80s, were written by people who were essentially bound and determined to break the rules, right? They hated the, they hated the golden age. They wanted, yeah. they wanted to react to the golden age. I don't mean that they literally hated it, but they yeah, were like, yeah. yeah, we don't like that. We want to do yeah. something that's the opposite of that. And so her idea was, okay, so you take those pieces and you put them in the hands of people who, are, who have that sensibility today, that who are 20 or 30 years old today, and are making a new kind of theater for themselves, but it would be interesting for them to confront what someone in that mood made back then. Oliver Jeez. Butler is now doing you know, a show there, or, or, or uh, Lear de Bessonnet is doing a show there, because they're, they're confronting a, a show from before they were born that was yeah. revolutionary in its day. Yeah. And I think that's been really exciting to oh, see. Yeah. And also has brought a whole bunch of new young artists to encores in a creative phase and a whole bunch of shows yeah. and a whole bunch of audiences. Yeah. And the, the difference between the encores audience and the off-center audience, just looking at the demographics, is stunning. Yeah. It's <laughs> stunning. cool, though. It's really great. Yeah. It's great to that's get great. a whole new generation yeah. in there. Totally. That's so important. Yeah. yeah. So what's next for you? What are you working on next? I need a nap, I think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's all catching up with the you know, interview. I, <laughs> two more Encore shows to do this year. I think I'm spoken for. <laughs> do you, uh, do you have, but you know, just as done. you think, 
just as you start to, as your head starts to hit the pillow, some idea crops up. Somebody tells you yeah. an idea. Somebody comes up with an idea, or you come up with an idea. And yeah, I'm ready to. You know. He's ready. I li- I'd like to see a libretto. I'd like to see a musical yeah. you do again. So, I did one. Yeah. Yeah, time, <laughs> I did one long ago, time, time and again. And again. Yeah. yeah, that's. Yeah, I could do it better now. I mean, I don't know that that show could be done better now because I think there's intrinsic structural problems with the novel in terms of making it a musical. Yeah, a great novel, fantastic novel, um, and it had a beautiful score. Yes, but my work was not. My work was not terrible. It was just it. It, it was never able to solve the intrinsic problems. I could probably do a better one now. Anybody wants to hire Maybe me? Maybe that's a <laughs> great idea. Looking for work. <laughs> yes. but, you know. um, and then before we go, Memphis in May? Oh, what about Memphis in May? You are a certified... How does this work? We were, we were, very, tell us. We were very curious. Oh, is, my, my stomach's grumbling too, yes. so it's great. Memphis in May is, a, is a, um, a, a month-long event in Memphis every year, the third weekend of which is a barbecue contest. My brother, who's not a cook at all, but who likes to eat... Uh, his girlfriend, uh, Pat Daly, who's in the theater business as well, yeah. read an item, this was many years ago, saying that there was a barbecue contest at the at the Jack Daniels uh, Distillery, uh-huh. Jack Daniels Annual Barbecue Contest, and that they were looking for celebrity judges. So she uh, and he and I all enjoy Jack, our glass of Jack Daniels every now and then. So she wrote to the people in, uh, in Lynchburg, Tennessee, saying... Um, you know, my boyfriend is a is a producer of Driving Miss Daisy. He'd be a perfect person for your barbecue contest. Now, she didn't define it any more than that. The film Driving Miss Daisy had just won the Oscar. Oh. <laughs> my brother produced the off-Broadway production of Driving Miss Daisy. But they were very excited about yeah. this. The producer of Driving Miss Daisy was going to come down and be a barbecue judge. So, so they went down there without any credentials and had a blast and came back and said, you got to be part of this. I mean, this is just too much fun because you get to meet people who are nothing like us. They're yes. from the South and they have their own ideas about yeah. everything and it's really interesting and the food's really good. Oh, yeah. So, uh, so I went down to the Daisy Theater on Beale Street and got certified. Best That's barbecue amazing. in New York City. Where, where do you go? There are a bunch of good barbecues in New York, but the truth of the matter is I almost never go anymore because in the summer, that's my weekend You've activity. Just got yeah. like cooking. A, a week cooking. of it. Yeah. He's cooking and he's cooking it. Now, I have to ask you, how did you get the idea to write this book? What was the inspiration behind it? You know, I started teaching at NYU, uh, um, oh, I don't know, about 10 years ago, I guess. At the graduate In, in the theater. graduate program at Tisch, uh, writers and directors, um, and um, writers being composers, lyricists, book writers. Um, I don't really know that there were any consequential number of directors in the program but in any case um i did it for a few years and then um i got asked to do little talks by you know the local jewish center or whatever <laughs> uh and i went out and did little talks because i at westchester community college and places like that yeah and the talks were nothing but essentially a, a collapsed version of what i was teaching at nyu over 12 weeks i would you know do in 45 minutes um and every time i did during the little question and answer period, people would say, well, when are you going to write a book about this? And I thought, never. Yeah. Um, but it got, the question got asked often enough, so I thought, well, maybe not never. Yeah. So I sat down and wrote a little proposal, and I sent it to an agent, and the agent said, this isn't a good enough proposal, but I think we can make it into a good enough proposal, so why wow. don't you do X, Y, and Z? So I did and sold the book, and then I had to write the book. Then <laughs> you just have to go through with that. Yeah. Wow. That's, That's great. Incredible. Now, um, what... 
I believe there are four musicals in the book that are the, the basis that you started. Well, that there, right? were, there were four musicals that I started out teaching at NYU Gypsy, Guys and Dolls, uh, My Fair Lady, and South Pacific. But by the, about the third year of the course, I had tossed out South Pacific for a year to try Carousel. Well, and I had to, you yeah. know. So little by little, um, the four became eight or nine and then the kids in the class i say kids advisedly they're all in their you know 20s and 30s wanted to talk about mormon and they wanted to talk about wicked and they wanted to talk about other things so by the time i got around to the book although there's still a core of kind of mostly golden age musicals that i talk about um it had spread out well the best book i think is gypsy which is arthur lawrence or the two best books are 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 in our gypsy and forum which is larry gelbart and I think that Gypsy is the most perfect in the sense that it's the most economical and it pays off everything that it sets up in ways that are really so brilliant. Jack, thank you so much for taking time really and talking it. to us. We appreciate My it. My pleasure. Don't forget, please buy Jack's book. It's amazing. The Secret Life of the American Musical Theater, How Broadway Shows Are Built. Till next time, take care. Bye, everyone. Join us next week when we interview legendary author and character man Jim Brochu. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.